At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 20th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. You can also support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. So have you ever really worked hard at something and just felt like you hit a plateau and never really made any more progress? Are we talking about our podcast right now? Oh, I hope not. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, I totally associate that where it's just, it doesn't seem to be getting any easier. What what is that for you? Uh, So it's a couple times, like definitely in sports where I've put in more effort and the results have been the same. I used to play hockey when I, I was younger and it seemed like, when I spent more time on the ice, I kind of plateaued and it didn't make a difference. And when you read Malcolm Gladwell's book, I'm assuming you did, Outliers, did the 10,000 hours rule influence you? Did you think, well, I'm just never going to get the 10,000 hours, so I should just hang up my hat? Or did you think, wow, if I just keep practicing, I'll eventually get there? I am a Gladwell skeptic in a lot of ways. So I never subscribed to that hour, that hour number as gospel as other places reported it, but it always did seem like an aspirational number. So as people who listen to this podcast regularly know, I'm a singer, and it wasn't something I was ever really good at to begin with. I was not a musical prodigy by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I believe there is a video of me at summer camp being very young and singing totally out of tune. I mean, like if, yeah. Oh, I need to see this video. Is it on YouTube somewhere? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's, it's it will be soon. In, in the bottom of my closet somewhere. But I had other subjects that came easily, like science, for example, and I didn't have to work that hard at it. And so it's not such a surprise, I guess, that I ended up doing a PhD in neuroscience before I got a master's in music. And I'm not saying this to tout my degrees, just to show you that it took a long time for me to come back to this idea that if I really want to become a good musician, I need to put in the hours. So I was influenced by, you know, this 10,000 hours rule but I also knew that it wasn't the whole story. And now, uh, as part of the, my, the work that I do, I try to apply the principles of learning and memory, as stated in the tomes of neuroscience, uh, and help musicians develop more effective practice strategies. So when I found out that Anders Ericsson, whose 1993 paper was the basis of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours Rule, had put out a new book 
I was super excited. The book is called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And indeed, Anders Ericsson, who's a professor at Florida State University, is an expert on experts. That's his topic. That's his area. That is the most meta thing I've ever heard. <laughs> so he really has studied this a lot. And he will be the first one to tell you that Gladwell got it wrong. On the 10,000 hours? On the 10,000 hours. So that's a total misattribution? In, in well... Is it total? I'm sure Gladwell would say no. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. He was like, look, it sounds nice to say 10,000 hours. And indeed, if you look at one of the major graphs in his 93 paper, it looks like the cumulative hours of the violinists that were rated the best by the time they hit 21, which presumably was when they were graduating from their conservatory and entering the professional field, they had accumulated on average 10,000 hours. But what you don't hear is the fact that not everyone had 10,000 hours that became a professional violinist. And some had more, some had less. And that it depends on the domain in terms of whether that number really fits. So some domains, like, for example, there's this great video that I use in some of my teaching of this really young kid who solves a Rubik's Cube blindfolded. That's that's a talent. <laughs> and it certainly didn't take him 10,000 hours to get there. Um, he, you know, anyway, so uh, we'll, we'll put that on the Tumblr page. People can watch. It's pretty awesome. So I, anyway, I was really excited to talk to Anders Ericsson because he's now become an expert at deliberate practice, which is really the important key here. It doesn't matter that you spend 10,000 hours. It matters how you spend those hours. And most of us hit a plateau. It's the, called the power law of learning, that the amount that you learn kind of decreases with the numbers of repetitions. So it's not enough to just do the same thing over and over and over again. So this is quality over quantity. Quality over quantity. And there are specific rules that Erickson has learned that, in fact, make deliberate practice more or less effective. And so that's what we'll talk about on the show today. Oh, that that sounds interesting. I'm going to try to apply some of this stuff. Did you feel that I'm going to talk to you afterwards, after we listen to the interview? I want to know if you're going to apply some of this uh, to the teaching of some of your students. Yeah, no, I, I, I yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about it at the end. But um, before we get there, there was a science uh, piece that our research assistant, Caitlin Smith, suggested to me that I thought was really interesting. She found a report of some researchers at MIT, the University of Sheffield, and the Tokyo Institute of Technology that showed that they could actually build a tiny origami robot uh, that can unfold from a capsule and crawl across your stomach. So wait, 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 this capsule means... Capsule is a stretch. Capsule is a stretch <laughs> if you watch the video. Okay, well, you, you kind of like swallow this thing, right? Yeah, it's enco encased in a sausage-type casing. Okay, so you have a sausage, some, mm -hmm. some you know, little hot dog-like thing. It's about the size of a large pill. And you take this essentially pill, robot pill, and in your stomach, it opens up and it becomes a little robot. And what it does is then apparently it's steered by some external magnetic fields, and then it can remove swallowed foreign objects like a button. <laughs> Before we get to the foreign objects, so this is really critical. This work on origami robots has been done at MIT for a long time now, and they've really uh, perfected this idea of... Uh, using simple magnetic fields and some simple magnets on a device that's folded in a particular geometry, that those magnets and the uh, uh, shifting magnetic field around them can 
basically introduce induce that robot to unfold in a particular pattern and then have utility with the pattern that it unfolds into. So so yes, it can take up very little space and then unfold out and then actually move. They've demonstrated that many years ago and they've been trying to perfect what that looks like now. And the did you watch the video? No. Oh, the video is hilarious. They basically um, did a side view of a fake stomach and put this robot down in there. And when they hit it with a magnetic field, it basically starts the folding process. And they looked for this foreign object, this, you know, watch battery. And that's the example they used. They said, you know, about 3,500 people a year swallow watch batteries. And watch batteries get embedded in esophageal lining and stomach linings, uh, and you don't poop them out. So these robots can actually pick them up and help you eliminate them. And they actually showed the process of it going through, and it was pretty quick. And it was all done, the motility was done by shifting the magnetic field. That's really amazing. But have they done this in any human yet? No, no, no. They're not cleared (laughs) to try this in a human trial. I guess if you are really desperate and your kid has swallowed a lot of watch batteries, maybe you'll call up this MIT office, but... Hasn't been done in humans any uh, yet. I mean, that is kind of exciting. But then I think about my two-year-old, and I wonder if he would actually intentionally swallow a watch battery in order to get the robot pill and have it. I, don't I know. think robot pill sounds nice. I think they're pretty far away before people get too excited about this because the iteration from going from a robot that can unfold using magnetic field to robot that can move after unfolding using magnetic field has been the span of a a number of years. And that doesn't feel like a gigantic leap, but now they have to move to a specified target, which is a pretty complicated task. And then they have to get out. Oh yeah. How do they get them out? They actually gloss over this pretty quickly. I think there's something about that sausage that might uh, help with elimination. (laughs) All right, well, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Anders Ericsson. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Anders Ericsson. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So as somebody who has thought deeply about deliberate practice for a long time, I'm really, really thrilled to finally get the chance to talk to you. So thank you so much from me personally for agreeing to do this interview. Well, I, I love talking about this because I think it really you know, is, is quite helpful to people who are motivated and really interested in improving. So I want to start with the infamous 10,000 hours myth. And in your book, you talk about how it's not always exactly interpreted correctly. Um, So let's start there. What have people gotten wrong about this idea that you need 10,000 hours to develop expertise in a domain? Well, I I think, you know, some people attribute this to, to me when, in fact, it was Malcolm Gladwell in his book who kind of thought that he noticed the very intriguing pattern, and and he actually misinterpreted our 93 paper by saying that all of the elite individuals had accumulated over 10,000 hours by age 20. Uh, So I guess I've never viewed, you know, it doesn't seem reasonable to me that there's a magical number. But I think even more importantly, uh, what I am concerned by is that some people have just taken this to be kind of, you know, evidence here that anybody can become an expert if you just hang in there long enough. 
and and people say you know i've been doing this now for 10 years or 15 years and it adds up to 10,000 hours so now i'm an expert and i think that misconception is is really key so it's not you know just keeping doing the same thing over i mean people don't become expert walkers or uh, basically drivers uh, just by doing something over and over. And I think what we're arguing here, deliberate practice, that is really, you know, when you're actually trying to gradually change and improve your behavior, and especially when you do that under the supervision of a sort of skilled teacher, that's what we call deliberate practice. So that's fundamentally different from, you know, like the Beatles that Gladwell talked about who performed, you know, thousands of hours in front of audiences. And I would not consider that to be deliberate practice. And that's because they're not focusing in on improving at every moment. Why why is that not deliberate practice? Well, I, I think if you if one just compares how a musician and and I guess you're really the expert here, you know, is trying to prepare for a performance it's not like they're playing through the piece, you know, uh, completely again and again. You know, they're identifying areas where they would like to be able to make changes and improvements and maybe technically difficult areas where they want to speed up. Uh, but they're really focused here on actually, you know, dealing with specific issues with the piece. Uh, so they're not, you know, kind of doing the things that they already know how to. And I think that's actually one big difference that people have noticed between beginning musicians is that they play through the whole piece again and again, often without even being correcting the mistakes that they're doing. And, and that seems pretty clear to most anyone that you're not going to get better just from basically doing things over and over. So one of the things that I talk to my musician students at the Conservatory of Music, uh, where I teach a course called Training the Musical Brain, where I'm, I'm really trying to bring together some of this cognitive neuroscience of learning and memory with the training of expert musicians. And one of the things I talk about, though, is the fact that the performance environment is often very different from the practice environment. And that in terms of how the brain works, I mean, the brain doesn't really distinguish between, doesn't, doesn't necessarily know that now you're in the practice room and now you're on the stage, you know, you're if if you practice as you would perform, that seems to me like that would be the sort of most efficient way of becoming an expert performer, since that's really what you want to do on stage. Well, I think that's that's a really good point. And and I guess when I've been observing musicians, one thing that I've noticed is, you know, that one thing you have to be able to, you know, perfect the piece that you're playing, and then often you know, skilled musician would be working on the musical experience that they're producing. They're, you know, not dissatisfied to reproduce it correctly. And I think it's very interesting to talk to more advanced students who talk about something, you know, in between here, and they call that, I guess, performance practice, where you actually are performing the piece as if there was a performance. Because, you know, when you're practicing, you're allowed to kind of stop if you make a mistake. Uh, I mean, if you stopped when you made a mistake when you're performing, you know, that would basically be viewed here. It would kind of interfere with people's musical experience. So it seems that one of the skills that musicians acquire, if they were inadvertently making a mistake, they can kind of cover up that mistake by slightly changing now how they're proceeding and making it 
more difficult for anybody to hear that they actually did do a mistake. So those skills here of basically being able to be focused on producing a real experience for the public and not having the options here of retaking things or correcting things, but basically focusing in on optimizing now your performance. I guess that's uh, what I would uh, have, have observed. I don't know if that's consistent with your experience. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And in fact, in a, in a lot of your book, you talk about doing rather than knowing. And I think that that comes into play here. I mean, one, one of my favorite books is uh, by David Mabbitt, uh, you know, the playwright, and it's called True and False. And, you know, he's sort of his, his punchline is if you want to be an actor, you need to be a, a theater animal, you need to live in the theater, you know, it's not enough to go and, and study plays and be in the academic institutions. Um, and I think that resonates with a lot of us who are trying who are performers, you know, in that in that sense. But I think that also you make the point that before you can get to the doing versus is the knowing, there are steps in between. So it's not like a novice can just start doing and expect that just by doing and, and including in that errors and, you know, skills that aren't particularly honed, that they can eventually just get to that expert level of performance. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I've kind of started to emphasize more is the importance here of acquiring the correct fundamentals. Uh, and because I've talked to a lot of maybe even more coaches uh, in sports, who basically argue that a lot of the athletes that they start working with, who are you know maybe in the late teens, uh, they have acquired so many bad habits that you basically have to put in a lot of work on just correcting those in order now to basically set the stage for more advanced, uh, you know, sophisticated uh, adjustments. So I think you know it's kind of like you're building a building and. And if you kind of don't make a correct foundation, it's going to be awfully hard here to add stories to that without actually running into problems. And you even talk about how some domains might not even be ready for deliberate practice yet because of this importance of coaching. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about that? What, what are the sort of necessary conditions at which deliberate practice can even begin? Well, uh, you know, we always constrain ourselves to domains where there is kind of objective standards so you can identify those individuals who are actually performing at a higher level. And, and I think, you know, in our society, there is kind of a combination between subjective judgment and performance. And sometimes you end up actually asking people to nominate individuals that they subjectively feel are excellent without really having any hard evidence on outcomes. And I guess one, one example that we talk about in the book is a medical doctor who get nominated by their colleagues and peers, but those peers don't really have access to what they're doing in the clinic. Uh, and we argue that the correct sort of objective performance would be to monitor their patients and make corrections here for, you know, the type of patient that they get, but basically comparing now and identifying doctors who have better outcomes than other, their colleagues. And, and that performance of being able to actually help your patients better than other doctors, that would be kind of a superior performance that I think is worthy of actually studying and trying to figure out how they do it. And then ideally, how you would be able to help other individuals uh, attain a higher level of performance. So on 
each of my midterms, I ask my students to define deliberate practice. And it's usually only by the time we get to the final exam that they have really incorporated all the different components that you outlined in your 93 paper. And at first, their description of deliberate practice sounds very much like what you call purposeful practice. So can you tell us what is the difference between purposeful practice, what that is, and deliberate practice? I, and, and I think that it's really a, a kind of a key and I've seen a lot of other people who have had problems with that. So purposeful practice would be if you actually try to improve something. So let's assume that you're, uh, you know, want to run a long distance race. Uh, you basically go out there and you kind of put in effort to basically, uh, you know, complete your training and stuff like that. Uh, so, so you really have the intent here of really improving. Now, the question is, if you do that, do you actually reach now the maximal level of performance by basically just kind of trying harder or, you know, running for longer distances or something like that? And I guess what I would argue is, if you look at the history of training of runners, they've actually identified now interval training as a much more effective method for actually being able to develop your speed. So basically running longer is not going to improve your speed. And in fact, you know, it's almost like you're adapting now to the sort of running for longer distance at maybe even a slower pace. But the interval training uh, really involves, you know, running as fast as you can for say 100 yards. And then you basically rest up and walk for a little bit, and then you run for 100 yards as fast as you possibly can. And you kind of keep doing that for maybe five, 10 minutes or something. That kind of strain seems to now lead to chemical and biological changes in your muscles. So they will actually now activate genes that will actually reprogram your the physiology and, and anatomy of your body to make your muscles being able to work more effectively, having more so they grow capillaries that would allow you to now get more blood to those muscles that you're putting the strain on. And, and we know also that even arteries, if you're sustaining that kind of intensive, challenging practice, will actually grow in diameter. And even the heart will actually change form to maximize now your ability to pump blood, you know, giving oxygen as well as nutrients to the muscles that need to sustain their activity. So yeah, that brings us to one of the most beautiful points in your book, I think, which is this idea that, you know, we're often told, if you just practice hard enough, you will fulfill your potential. And you're turning that on its head and saying, actually, if you practice well enough, if you practice deliberately enough, for enough time, you will build potential rather than simply fulfill it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how you came upon that insight? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think that is maybe one of the sort of most exciting parts of this. And I met many, many college students who basically have this idea that it's their job to find what they're gifted at or what they're passionate about. And, and they spend often, you know, four years and really cannot find it. And I think, you know, it's the belief that people actually are born with this thing. So it's their job just to find it. Whereas I guess what we're arguing, you know, you, you need to recognize here that you need to build it. So you need to kind of have some help finding something that, you know, would be particularly well suited to your, 
you know, upbringing, your parents and your environment. So you basically are, you know, having the resources to do it. And then you actually keep on developing it. And that's basically, you know, you can change your mind. You know, it's not like you're committed to life if something other, you know, comes up that you're even more excited about. But basically that idea that unless you start, you know, striving to develop, you know, some performance in a domain, it's never going to happen. And so this, you know, a, a lot of times when when you do achieve some level of mastery, you know, when I, I remember when I first was able to sing a very difficult aria and, you know, I, I performed it well and on, you know, I got off the stage and the first thing that people say to me is, well, you are so gifted, you know, you've got this talent, you're so fortunate to get that. And of course, a, a lot of performers, I mean, we don't want to be you know, unkind to our audience, but it sort of, you know, implies that we didn't put the work in <laughs> and that, you know, we didn't, we didn't. And, and so this, this idea of building potential, I think is so interesting to me because for a long time, people were like, well, you just have to find, you know, your voice as you're saying, but the truth is, is that you don't really know what you're capable of until you start trying to build it. Um, and that this, that, you don't know what the next step is going to be once you'd have those, you know, epigenetic changes or, you know, the, 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 the muscular changes that come with the interval training, et cetera. You don't know where you're going to be able to go next. And, and I think that is, you know, really an exciting part of acquiring performance that, and, and I guess I find that people are committed, who are committed to actually, you know, improving their performance. The, they are the kind of people that I love interacting with. I mean, they're, enthused and they're kind of, you know, really on a journey where they're kind of discovering opportunities. And, and especially once you've reached the higher levels where, you know, maybe the emphasis is now on trying to find what you can contribute uniquely uh, to a domain where there's all these contributions already. And, and that, I think, is a particularly exciting phase when, you know, you're kind of exploring and in some ways going to places where people haven't been before. Yeah. And, and so that, you know, circles back to this idea that, you know, why is it that interval training and running, for example, is more effective than just jogging for longer periods of time? And, you know, as you mentioned, it's because straining the body has a different reaction. And of course, the brain is part of the body. So if you're talking about some kind of mental skill, like, you know, remembering the digits of pi or, or what have you, you know, you've, you've still got some of the same processes where, you know, the body wants to maintain homeostasis, but if you stretch it, it will adapt. Um, so at one point, in the book, you talk about how it's better to train at 100% or even beyond, you know, your comfort zone for less time than to train at, say, 70% where you're comfortable for more time. Is that is that right? That, that's just perfectly uh, uh, described. And I think what people tend to do that I think is kind of productive is that they're so excited here about improving fast that they tend to try to practice for longer hours. So they're kind of collecting hours as opposed to asking for how long can I actually sustain this maximal effort to make the change that I'm trying to do. And, and if you're really trying to do something that you can't do, uh, then it really requires your full effort to get closer and find ways here to, you know, reach your goal. And, and to basically do that on sort of 50%, a lot of people would even say that you may actually acquire bad habits by basically now pacing yourself and, and they're actually working against yourself 
rather than making improvements, you may actually, you know, uh, divert yourself in a different direction. And and I and I think basically that starting out and and it seems like 15, 20 minutes when somebody starts with a new domain, you know, that's about as long as they seem, or especially children seem to be able to kind of maintain that concentration and, and pushing the children to go beyond that, you know, I think really creates negative consequences rather than any benefits. So um, there's this kind of notion that you bring up, which is that Children are obviously a focus of a lot of this work, and that's because we all know that you're sort of more malleable as a child, uh, both physically and mentally. So let's talk a little bit about this other myth that comes from the 10,000 hours misinterpretation that at any point in your life, you can achieve mastery by putting in these hours. But the truth is, is that there are biological constraints, both mentally and physically. Right. And, and I think that's where I'm really uh, looking forward to more research on, on basically what are the constraints. I mean, we're learning, for example, that the turnout in ballet dancers, you know, that can be done when the, when the bones are not yet calcified. But once they're calcified, uh, it's pretty clear evidence that if you try to change these things, you're going to almost hurt yourself and be not be able here to make those adjustments that any child can do during those developmental windows when, when you actually, by training, are able to tweak your uh, development for the rest of your life. And, and I guess in music, I guess the perfect pitch example is particularly striking uh, because for a long time people knew that it was, for adults, virtually impossible to learn how to acquire perfect pitch. And now I guess the research implies here that any child with the right kind of training here between ages three and five can actually acquire it. But so it's almost like that training uh, influences the development of the brain in such a way that uh, basically you can now preserve this ability into adulthood. But if you didn't have that training, uh, then you would be on a different path. Yeah, it's the same thing as learning a language, for example. You know, people that learn it earlier in their childhood can speak without an accent, even if they don't use it for a number of years. There seems to be a kind of critical period there for, for language acquisition. And and But I, I do want to talk about this perfect pitch study from 2014 that kind of changed the entire perception of, you know, a lot of us think of perfect pitch as something that is innate, that it's that's what you're born with. And boy, are you lucky to have it because it gives you such an edge if you want to be a musician. But, you know, a Japanese scientist changed that view. T- tell us about that study. Yeah, so in, in that particular study, they actually noticed, and, and I think most children go through this progression that between three and five, they tend to process stimuli as being kind of independent of each other. But once you get more like six or seven, you're now into doing relative judgment. So you develop relative pitch. But that requires now that you have two tones that you can relate. But if you only get a sort of a single tone, then basically you need to uh, rely on this perfect pitch ability. And, and what they did in this study was, you know, to kind of arrange for this uh, group of uh, children uh, to actually get that training of actually naming uh, pitches. And, and what was sort of amazing was that all of the children actually acquired that ability. Uh, but remember now that they were in that young, uh, that window where we know that the brain would be susceptible to acquire this type of ability. But it's still amazing that all of them 
now have perfect pitch. <laughs> well, you know, I, and, and I think that it kind of really hopefully gets people thinking about, do we really know that you can't basically acquire these things? And, and I think as a science, I would like, you know, and, and if it turns out that there are certain things that you cannot acquire, I'd be happy to acknowledge that. But my position has been that if we exclude height, which you really can't change uh, through training, uh, I, I'm still looking for basically uh, abilities and other things that you really can acquire. And now we have to add these developmental windows because if you want to do something that would require uh, basically having had that early exposure, I think that's going to be a good guide. You know, what are the types of skills that would be appropriate for you to pursue if you start out at a later age? So one of the things about deliberate practice that I think people who first hear the term don't really understand is the notion that it's not just about focus and concentration. I mean, that's already in the name of the type of practice. But the other key component is feedback and how you can correct the errors that you're making. So tell us a little bit about how you know, important feedback is, what kind of feedback seems to be most uh, effective, and, you know, why that's such a key feature of this type of practice. Well, you know, I mean, if you're just essentially doing something that you don't get feedback on, how would you be able to make adjustments and corrections? And and I think there's a, you know, a, a lot of uh, people have looked at medicine as a kind of an example of a problem area where a patient comes in, the doctor tries to diagnose them, and then comes up with a diagnosis. But it may take, you know, three, four months even uh, before they realize that the doctor made a misdiagnosis and made an error. At that time, you know, the doctor even most often don't even hear about the error. Uh, but if they do, they don't really remember what they were thinking about. So that's a very difficult uh, sort of learning environment to actually improve. So what we kind of have pointed out, and I think there's some really interesting now uh, initiatives, is to kind of build libraries where, you know, you can actually have now x-rays of patients, and then you wait until the final diagnosis has been reached. And now, basically, somebody can, in a training environment, look at the x-ray, try to made, make a diagnosis, and then get immediate feedback about what was actually wrong with this patient or if that patient didn't have a problem. So, so I would argue here that without feedback, it's going to be impossible to learn. But what we also try to emphasize is that when it comes to, say, music, you need to develop representations. And when you start maybe with a musical instrument, uh, you're going to have to rely on your parents or, or some adult actually kind of helping you realize the differences. But the idea is that the adult or the teacher should really work with you to help you become your own teacher and eventually develop these representations. So when you're playing, you can actually hear what is wrong and that you need to correct. And, and that those representations seems to be one of the common themes here of any form of expertise that we've looked at, uh, that basically individuals can image what they want to do before they actually do it. And there is sort of a higher level, cognitive level, in which you can kind of control your learning. Yeah, you talk about, you know, a couple of really interesting studies. One, I think that's 
probably relatively well known is that chess masters, you know, if they they can actually memorize boards that are set up as real games because they have a representation of what those moves are like. But, you know, if there's just random pieces on the chessboard, they would just be like any other individual that doesn't have any expertise in terms of being able to remember where the pieces are. Um, but you, the, the new studies for me were ones of, say, soccer players or rock climbers who are using their mental representations to be able to predict uh, what other, you know, what are the different paths to their goals. So tell us a little bit about those studies. Well, so the kind of key is to demonstrate that, that they're really as part of the individual. So one of the kind of test situations they've done here with uh, soccer players and other types of team uh, players is to show a videotape and then basically blank it out and now ask, what would basically the person with the ball, what should they be doing? And what you find is that with high levels of skill, they actually know not just where the key players that would be relevant to that decision-making, what where they are, but also where they're actually moving. So it's almost like they kind of can see, you know, half a second into the future and thereby making decisions here about what they should do with the ball that are going to be more successful than less skilled players. And, and, and that kind of cognitive development uh, is highly correlated now with basically performance across sort of development. But it's interesting, you know, that with all these things that we can measure, they're not there when you start out. They're actually developing over time. So you can actually, you know, infer that there has to be a learning process that actually is responsible for this kind of improvement because you don't see it in, in other children who are not exposed here to the uh, appropriate training. And that also kind of explains why people are getting better at everything, it seems. You know, runners are running faster. Chess masters are getting better at playing chess. Uh, people are remembering more digits and random strings. And, you know, the, the idea I think here is that with coaching, with an understanding of different types of mental representations, uh, that's where a lot of the improvements are coming in. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, right. And, and, and I guess just sort of uh, talking about the memory work uh, where we actually found here that, you know, there is this limit of short-term memory that people can only rehearse about seven digits. What I think is the most important kind of element of that study is that in order to actually change how many digits you can report back, you have to qualitatively approach the task differently. So it's like you're now storing things in long-term memory, and now you really don't have any limits. So now you, one can kind of understand how somebody can recall strings of 100, and it turns out now that the current record is over 450 digits that are read one per second. But the kind of skills that are allowing people to do that has nothing to do with the rehearsal that most people spontaneously engage in. And, and so if you just tried harder to do what people spontaneously do, you would never be able to get to the kind of performances that we now uh, see other people do. So people also say, okay, so maybe it's not that you're innately talented, maybe you do need to have this amount of practice. But another thing that differentiates one person from another is how much willpower they have to, to, to do the practicing. Uh, and you actually 
balk at the term willpower. You, you say that that's not the right way of thinking about it. Well, and again here, I, I would be very interested in your, your comments as well. I think, you know, willpower may be something that you can propel you here for a, a week or so. But if you're talking about somebody here who's going to dedicate the next 20 or 30 or 40 years, then I think you really need to look at motivation as something that is being developed, much like the skill itself. So you actually find these sources of motivation and, and something that the skill development gives you back. And, and I guess talking about music, what I've been struck by is, you know, how musicians, when they reach a certain skill level, how much they enjoy just kind of playing music for themselves. So it's almost like they can actually now generate musical experiences and they have the representation so they can actually enjoy what they're doing. I think a lot of beginning music students, they seem to be more like typists, you know, where they just type a sequence and they can't really hear what they're producing. So obviously they're not getting any enjoyment out of the playing and also they can't really correct themselves. Uh, so building up these representations, I think this opens up a new world uh, that is sometimes hard for people who have never attained that kind of level of, of performance in any domain, how that's possible. Yeah, there's a really interesting TED Talk by Benjamin Zander, who's a conductor, who talks about one of the differences that happens as an individual gets trained in music is that the impulses that they feel for the music get bigger. So at first, it's, you know, you have an impulse on every note. So it's just kind of they're plodding along. And then, you know, with expertise, you develop a mental representation where an impulse can be an entire section of a piano sonata, for example, the entire first section. Uh, and that that's really where musicality comes in, because now you're telling an entire story on the basis of one impulse. Um, and it and it kind of jives with this idea of, you know, chunking in working memory, which is, you know, at first, you have to pay attention to every single digit. But if you can change the way you pr you chunk that information, um, then, you know, you can fundamentally change how many digits you can recall. Right. And, and, I, and I think looking at what people enjoy, you know, like seeing a very good movie that, that really captures you, I think that type of experience, uh, I think that highly skilled individuals can have if you, you know, when they actually are exploring sort of their current limits. It's kind of, you know, basically that complex structure, which is sometimes hard to communicate to people who haven't had that uh, experience. But I just totally agree with, you know, what you were talking about, of experiencing these structures. And, and it's also, I guess, in music, your expectation is going to drive how you experience things. And, and that's another thing that seems to cut across all sorts of domains of expertise, that it's not like uh, an athlete is getting faster in responding to uh, various stimuli, it seems that the key speed up involves actually being able to anticipate what's going to happen. So you can actually start preparing for it even before it happens. And I think the same thing with music. I, when you have a structure, and part of the enjoyment sometimes is that when you have a deviation of that expectation, you know, a little bit like a joke where you know, you basically have one expectation, and then when you hear the punchline, you know, it basically violates that expectation. 
Yeah, it's it's a little bit like a deceptive cadence, right? Which you think is going to come to an end, but then it goes somewhere else. And that's exciting both for the audience. But if the pianist or the person who's performing it doesn't understand how to set that up, they can just, you know, tell the punchline wrong and it's not funny. You know what I mean? It's that you, you've got to set the story And I also do talk to my students a lot about mindset, because I think initially, you know, a lot of these students come in with what Carol Dweck calls a fixed mindset, this notion that, you know, they are talented and they're gifted. And so, you know, they they set performance goals. I want to perform in Carnegie Hall. That's where if I'm if I'm not in Carnegie Hall by the time I'm 23, I'm a failure, you know, and over time, they. I think they develop what's what's called a growth mindset, which is this notion that, you know, in fact, you know, where how you improve is is by putting in the effort and they start setting learning goals like I want to learn to play you know this particular set of pieces and all of a sudden the motivation completely shifts in the practice room and in my opinion that's necessary to sustain uh, the the motivation necessary to develop expertise in, in music at least and and I think it's so interesting one thing that I've found difficult to find is, sort of video clips where you can actually follow how a given musician actually now improves over time. And it seems to me that if one could make, demonstrate those changes, uh, that would just make it more, you know, easy for individuals to understand here what the path is going to be like. And I think there, you know, one aspect of the 10,000 hour idea is you're not going to basically, even if you have whatever if there is such a thing as innate talent, you need a very extensive amount of this kind of focused, deliberate practice in order to reach uh, basically the very highest levels of performance. So basically having almost like a roadmap. And anyway, I'm, I'm kind of excited about helping people uh, see here how the improvement is happening. Because if you have the innate talent view, I think you might even be blind to it. It's almost like you're hoping that something might happen uh, rather than designing a path by which you will be able to attain certain kinds of goals in terms of playing or, or performing. So I use your 1993 paper to convince my, especially pianists who have a bad habit of spending 10 hours in the practice room every day uh, for diminishing returns and, you know, higher rates of injury, uh, you know, to limit their practice to, you know, up, up to four hours a day, maybe in one hour sessions, not four hours at a time. But I also point out that, in fact, the best violinists in the 93 study slept more than all the other groups. They took an afternoon nap. Uh, and I was pleased in your book when you when you explicitly called this out as, you know, an observation that's really that we should we should pay attention to. And 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 my feeling is the way I see it, once you kind of take that ability to concentrate a hundred percent as this kind of the goal for how you set up your life, well then it becomes important here that once you wake up, you know, you're gonna be completely rested. And and I think it's interesting when you think about some of these changes, you know, and, and maybe when we're talking about runners, you know, with muscles and capillaries changing, they're not changing when you're exercising. They're actually changing in response to that strain while you're actually resting. So in a sense here, uh, resting and being able to allow yourself to be completely recuperated until you know, basically start the next days of training is really key. And, and that's going to maximize. And also, I think it's going to sensitize 
individuals to the need of not overdoing because there's a lot of evidence, I think, in sports for athletes who basically train so hard that they actually increase, uh, you know, the risk of injury. And once you have injuries, you know, it's almost like, you know, have a tremendous problem that is very difficult to cope with, especially, you know, depending on what the injury is. Yeah, and now we're learning more from sleep researchers of the importance of even different stages of sleep in terms of consolidating the information that you're learning. So from some of um, Matt Walker and Robert Stickgold's work, we know that stage two, for example, um, which is kind of like the the next stage after the lightest sleep, is really important for learning uh, skills and habits, particularly motor skills and habits. So it made a lot of sense to me that the violinists would practice in the morning, then they would take a nap in which they would probably spend a significant amount of that time, you know, in stage two or, you know, obviously other stages as well, but um, not a full night's sleep. And then they were probably enhanced in their future, you know, evening rehearsal session by the consolidation that happened during their napping. I mean, is that an unreasonable inference? Well, I think it's a very exciting prospect. And, and I guess I haven't personally done any research on sleeping, but but that sense here of if you wanted to kind of maximize how much practice you could do at 100%, I would argue that napping is a very nice way of making sure that you don't, you aren't stressed. So if you can fall asleep and actually, you know, rest for, you know, an hour or something like that in the afternoon, that is kind of maybe the best way in which you can actually recuperate. Uh, and, and I think once we learn more here about what's happening in the body and the brain when you're taking naps, uh, we might be able to really kind of understand even more how that happens uh, and, and why it seems to be beneficial. Well, I certainly have found uh, my new training Bible in your book, uh, Peak, and I'm, I'm excited to you know read it again. I just <laughs> went through it this week and I, I made all kinds of notes that I'm looking forward to getting back to. But I want to end the conversation on a slightly lighter note, which made me chuckle in one of your chapters, which is this notion that not every domain is ready yet for deliberate practice and that one domain in which we call people experts maybe isn't quite ready, and that is the wine industry. So tell us about why why wine expertise is still perhaps not quite ready for deliberate practice. Right. Well, and, and I think that's really interesting. You know, in our culture, experts are often pronounced sometimes by themselves, but basically they don't aren't required to demonstrate now what it is that they can do better. And uh, I think there's some really important work done showing that professional forecasters are really not more accurate than college students in actually making forecasts for political events and other things in the future. But there are other people who argue in, you know, that they're wine connoisseurs. And one of the things is that if you know the wine that you basically are describing, now, basically, if you have a lot of knowledge about that, uh, that's going to be pretty impressive. But if you're actually now forced to uh, describe a wine that you don't know. So it's sort of blind wine tasting. What the findings show is that people are not even consistent across time in their descriptions of the same wine. Now, maybe if people actually got more practice, because it's relatively rare that people do it blindly. You know, they pick wines that they know a lot about. Uh, so they're really not kind of exposed to that ability here of discriminating 
uh, uh, so they actually get feedback about their judgments here about the wine uh, because obviously if you buy the bottle then you know what kind of wine it is. So I look forward to Google developing a robot that can become a sommelier expert in blind tasting with, with the right algorithms. <laughs> well, I think that would be really interesting. And, and you know, maybe like in, in chess, if we can build these robots, then uh, we would also help individuals to learn very effectively because then they could actually get that kind of immediate feedback uh, when you're doing the blind tasting. Well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Anders Ericsson. Well, it was a genuine pleasure, and thank you so much for uh, talking to me. So the, that distinction between deliberate practice and purposeful practice seemed to really resonate with you around how you teach students. Uh, absolutely, because I see this all the time. So in music class and conservatories, for the most part, it varies a little bit per instrument, but especially for singers, you take a lesson and then you're essentially expected to go practice on your own. And you might get like a list of vocalises, you know, you might get some hints on what you should be looking for, but the vast majority of your practice you do by yourself on your own. Own, which is very different from how classical musicians were trained, say, 200 years ago, um, where they had for a year or two a lesson every single day with their teacher. So it was much more of this model of, you know, here you're, you, you play in front of your teacher, teacher gives you immediate feedback, corrects you, and then that's how you put in your practice time is in front of your teacher. So nowadays, it's really important for students to be effective in how they practice, but also to be their own teachers in a sense. And so I, you know, often have students who, you know, they're really motivated, and they will go through this purposeful practice, but it won't be deliberate in the way that Anders describes it with the feedback with the new knowledge, incorporating the new knowledge, etc. And they'll keep doing the same thing over and over again, thinking, oh, if I could just do it a little bit more, I'll get there. And in fact, some of their teachers tell them that's what they need to do. So in a sense, you have to teach people how to practice well. And it's a funny sentiment, because right now, where we are in time, the Golden State Warriors, which our local basketball team is doing really well. And they, there was this big piece on how Steph Curry practices, their best player, and how he has this very regimented, deliberate practice. It isn't just like, oh, I'll shoot a thousand three-pointers and I'll get better. He does it in this really specified way with, that has feedback in it. So there is a quantity threshold. Yeah. I mean, this and this but, is actually what is really exciting to me about musical training, because that's sort of, you know, my area I can apply to almost any kind of training. But yeah, we have to get more specific if we want to continue to get better, because now the bar keeps getting set higher. You know, as runners get faster, as violinists get better, you know, you have to be even better to become an expert in your field. So how much of this is really only going to apply to people that are already near the peak? Well, I actually think that it applies to anyone who wants to improve and doesn't have a ton of time uh, or doesn't want to make, you know, all the mistakes that you can make along the way, although failure is a big part of deliberate practice, interestingly enough. But I also think that this applies to things like creativity in the workforce. I know, kind of buzzword stuff, but I've been reading about, for example, the kind of environment that Pixar uh, has put into their practice. And it's not about like, okay, we're going to go and buy somebody's great idea and create a movie out of it. That's not how they work. Uh, they understand that that kind of creativity requires essentially deliberate practice. And they use a kind of deliberate practice in the way that they, you know, have ideas, they exchange ideas, and then they go through this like post project post mortem process, which is really the feedback side of deliberate practice. And like, I know you and I like, 
we don't like listening to an episode and then figuring out what went right or wrong. It's really uncomfortable. It's hard. It's hard. And yet, if we want to get better, that's apparently what we got to do. Oh, well, we got some homework in front of us. Indeed. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chan, Nick Cadillac, Brendan Ryan, Sean Johnson, and Anonymous. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And we should note that next weekend is Memorial Day, and we are taking the day off. So we'll see you again on June 3rd. Inquiring Minds is peak produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you in two weeks. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.